0: We're in First Kings 6 tonight, and I will say that there are certain weeks, let's be honest, you can stumble in off the street, and as you stumble in off the street, you have no concept of scripture, you're not really a Bible student, you're just kind of going, God, who in the world are you, or out of the world are you? And, and, you know, and then you're like, wow, okay, I, I get it, and that's really cool. And, you know, and then there's certain weeks that the text is rather technical. And as a Bible student, I jones on stuff like this, because as a Bible student, this gives me all kinds of really cool information. But for a person, it'd be kind of like if you were an architect, you know, you know we could all kind of walk by St. Paul's Cathedral and go, oh, that's really cool. That's a cool building. And, we can, you know, and then we can kind of look and someone could say, Sir Christopher Wren designed it. And we'd be like, oh, cool, Sir Christopher Wren, all right, you know. Uh, and, and then, you know, and, but if you're an architect, you're like, whoa, it's like 365 feet high. That's a foot per day and you know and it's like let me tell you about the columns and the things like that for as an architect that stuff's really cool and but as the outsider who really isn't into the structure as much as pretty building you know we kind of look and we just like it's big and it's cool the reason i say that is that comes with scripture as well we can look at scripture and as we look at scripture you know the average person that's an outsider can still look and go it's big and maybe it's cool i don't know uh, but for us it's like these details are really cool and we are at a very juxtapositional time in history, and it's the, one of the few places <coughs> excuse me, where we actually get a very distinct time stamp so we actually know when in the world we're dealing with. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll dig in, and we're going to start to see now the temple getting built. And we'll see how that pertains to us as Christians here in 2017. Pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be in your word and expect your word to speak and to love on you and to be loved by you and to enjoy that love with other people who enjoy your love and enjoy loving you. Thank you, God, that you have filled our hearts pregnant with promise of your return and of the salvation we already currently possess in knowing you. But also that promise and excitement of, the, of that return of yours and how you will take us to be with you forever and how that encourages us. And as we look at this, God, we recognize your desire to make us your living temple. And I just love you and I thank you. Please bless this time now, I pray. In Jesus' name, captivate us in your word. Draw us in and may we know you and know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight, is it would any, please don't just believe me. Please don't just assume what I'm saying is true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Oh, see, I know some of you knew it. And it gives me a moment to take a drink of a boba which is a dangerous thing to drink you're teaching. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv. Try that. Ziv. No, you can't give me this. Ziv. Ziv. Yeah kind of like those rib boats going by, Ziv. In the second month, then he began to build the house of the Lord. Ziv, by the way, was the Canaanite name, if you will. It is to the Hebrew, con- the, the Hebrew uh, comparison, it's the month of Iyar. Iyar is the second month of the Hebrew calendar. Uh, it is in the spring months, it has 29 days. It usually falls between April and June, which is basically, think of it as the month of Pentecost, would be the idea. The time of the first great harvest, the time when you first start to see great fruition for the hard work you've done prior, and that's, I think, a good place to start. Is this is happening at a time when, really, to be honest, you're working hard in the fields, but you're working hard because you've worked hard prior to this point, and now all the hard work you're doing is of benefit. Now, have you any of you heard about what took place on one of the roads towards Kent this last couple of days ago, where 20s started magically flying out somewhere they don't even know where they came from, but they were littering the streets and people were just throwing their cars, they were just spilling out of their cars, grabbing as many 20s as they could, as you can imagine. People were exhausted, but who cares? It says that elderly people and people that were that were seemingly non-ambulatory mysteriously gained the strength to get out of their cars so they could run around and collect as many 20-pound notes as they could. And the reason I say that is it may have been effort, especially for some of those that were lacking the strength that would have been abundant in the youth. Still, we're more than happy to do that. Because in the end of it all, they knew what they were getting was something of great benefit, at least in their minds. The reason I say that is it was the same idea. That's what it would be like every spring for us here. Because when the harvest really starts coming, that's money, baby. You're looking out there and you realize this is how the family eats and this is how the family survives even in the harder months. But a lot of work has gone in before that. There's been sowing and there has been, you know, there's been digging that. I mean, the ground can get quite hard there and there's a bit of clay there. So you, you get that blade deep in the soil and you're plowing that thing and you're, you're laying out the seed and you're covering it up and you're praying for the good rain. A good rain is a rain that is not so abundant it washes away your seed. And it's a season that basically is like London every month of the year where it rains a lot during those uh, winter winter months. And then at the end of all of that, you pray that it really was what was necessary. And then at that point now, we're gathering it in, which means a lot of hard work had gone in before that. Now, most of the hard work that had gone in prior to this hadn't even been from Solomon. It had been from David, his father. Because David was the one, if you remember, who collected all of the materials. That was, in essence, digging the blade in the soil. He, had, he was the one who purchased the land that the temple could be built on. And he was the one that had a really passionate desire to be with him. And we read now, again, we have a specific timestamp. According to the Gregorian calendar, by the way, uh, it, it basically before the Babylonian exile, you know, the months were called, you know, they were had they were kind of traditionally Canaanite or Syrophoenician name, and then they move, of course, to the Hebrew name of Ziv. Uh, now, Ziv, by the way, means morning light or glow. Uh, in the ayar, the, the, in the same means, in essence, sprouting, because, again, it's that season, it's the, it's the harvest. 480 years. And the fourth year of Solomon's reign, the month of Ziv. So now we're looking at April, May. And as I start to do the math on all of this, Solomon reigned, by the way, if we see here, uh, from, for, for what it's worth, from about 971 to 931 for 40 years. All those first three kings, Saul, David, and, Saul, and uh, Solomon, all reigned for 40 years. The third year then puts it at 966 BC. So that's where we're at at this point. Now, if I start doing the math on all of this, it's the 480th year. I subtract 480 years for what it's worth. That takes me down to 1446 BC, and that would have been the time of the Exodus. Now, I start doing the math on that, and then we start talking about Tutmosis II and then Hymotep II, what pharaoh was there. But I challenge you, if you were to look at the, the, uh, the museum in Cairo, and you actually, because they still have displays online, and I challenge you to do this, as you do, um, you will see that there's a specific pharaoh that they call the dreamer. And the reason they call him that was because his his reign was very short-lived, and all of a sudden it was like he was doing really well, he was doing really well, and then he sort of fell off the face of the planet. No one seems to have recorded, well, no one in the Egyptians, what happened to the poor guy or, by the way, his entire army that also seemed to disappear with him. I think that's kind of an interesting read for what it's worth. That puts the time of judges, as I do the math in between, of about 360 years, which is what Stephen says, by the way, in essence, when he says roughly 350 years uh, in the book of Acts. Now, if I've lost you, forgive me. All of that to say that we have a timestamp, stamp, and now we're looking at a time, and our time is 966 BC, and he's starting to work on the temple. Now, uh, with that... <clears throat> It's important to note in 1 Chronicles 28, 19, and 20 that he is doing so because God personally gave the blueprints to his father David. And David, in other words, Solomon isn't free for me. Now, hear me on this, though. God says, This is what I want built, but the blueprints do not say what gets built first. Does that make sense? And the reason I say that is it's going to happen opposite of the way the tabernacle was built. Because do you know what was built first of all of the rooms of the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. Remember, God said, and it's important to note, in Exodus 25, now make me a sanctuary, literally the term is a dwelling place, that I may dwell among my people. That was why God wanted to do that. Hear me on this. He wanted a mobile tent that God could dwell therein, so that he could actually be around people to let them know he wants to be around people. Now, the reason I say that is, even as we kind of take a look at this, I'd rather salt the meat now and cook it and then have you chew on it, if you will, while we go through this text to see how it relates. What is the temple of the living God now? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are a Christian because the moment, according to Ephesians 1.13, the moment you believed, God made his dwelling inside of you. And Paul says to the Corinthians, as he would to us as believers, don't you realize, don't you know in the word, you do, in other words, this isn't even that experiential knowledge. This is, didn't anyone ever tell you this? Paul was there for a year and a half. You'd think, like, in other words, I taught this, were you listening? Don't you realize you are literally the, nos is the word in the Greek, you are the dwelling place of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the word "dwell" is not the word we would normally use, which is mene, which means to remain. It literally is the word. Uh, it is the word. <coughs> excuse me, oikos or oikion, which means literally "house." In other words, don't you realize you are the dwelling place of God? And the Spirit of God chose to make you His house. That's what He's saying. Now, I'd like you to consider this. Because when I first gave my life to the Lord, when I first accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I got the idea that God wanted to live in me. And that was a cool thought. Freaky, spooky, but it was cool. Now... I knew that, but the idea was is that I was already kind of a fortress. I was an island. I really, I know this is going to sound strange, I didn't talk much at all. I, didn't, I wasn't kind, I didn't smile. I was brooding and I was distant and I was aloof. Not because I thought I was better than everyone else, not at all. I just didn't want to interact with people because I just thought it was dumb. So I was an island to myself. I was in essence like Alcatraz. You know, it was an island surrounded by sharks and ugly things and, and inside that there was, like today, there's nobody really lives there anymore. And it was just me and my fortress. And when God came in, it was like, oh, this is so good. Guess what? You get to live here in my fortress. Right, I agree, just you and me, it's like honeymoon, it's just going to be you and me forever. Let's just be you and me, and we'll, and we'll just have this. This will be like God's love island, and it will just be you and me in the fortress. It's just so cool. Don't let anyone bother us from this point on, God. It's just going to be you and me. And then God started to show me that his dwelling place was always supposed to be mobile and among people because he wants them to know that he wants to be with them. And so what happens is God started to move me to be among people. My first smile that I remember that wasn't forced happened after that point. And I remember what it was like when the Lord would just sort of park me somewhere around people. And he goes, now, you're the tabernacle. And I want to use you to let people know that I want to be with them. But there's a problem. That problem is sin. So I've paid the price on the cross. And now they have a choice to make so I can be with them. And the example that he used, or at least I could modify it to today, would be like if the queen wanted to go somewhere and make an announcement. She wanted to go and she had a meeting. Let's say it was with some dignitary. She would leave the Buckingham Palace, and she would ultimately take some form of vehicle to get there. And as she would take that vehicle, imagine if she actually wanted to go and speak to every person, to all of her constituents, that should include us, at Hyde Park or someplace like that. More than likely, she might not necessarily. I mean, if it's like the Pope, she'd. You know, like he has the Pope mobile, you know. But it's weird. It's like she would actually take this vehicle, and then when she got to the place, she would stay in this protected vehicle. But as she stayed in this protected vehicle, she may speak on a microphone, and there might be loudspeakers on the outside of the vehicle so everyone could hear her message. The reason I say that is God now has appointments with people that He wants to speak to, and guess whose vehicle He wants to use? You. Because you are the tabernacle now. So God looks and he says, Bruno, I got to tell you, and I've been praying about this. This is a great, the perfect time to say something like this. You can't be doing PowerPoint. Somebody should do PowerPoint because you need to be at the door. You share Jesus with people. You got to be where that is. Get the tabernacle there. And he's like, I've got an appointment with somebody and I want to use you. I'm going to take you. I'm already in you. So why not take you there? And then I'll use you as my loudspeaker. So what happens if you're like, okay, Lord, I just want to be with you. God's like, sooner or later, he's going to light the hob underneath your rear end, and he's going to get you moving somewhere. Some days it will be just you and him on the island, and some days he's going to smack that thing right into the rest of the land. Does that make sense? Because this whole idea of wanting to build a temple now is kind of beautiful and profound with that thought that, in essence, what's happening in essence is what God's doing in me in some degree. He's given the blueprints, but the difference is when God actually had it built, remember the difference with the two people who built the, the tent, the tabernacle back in, in Exodus starting in 25, Bezalel and Ahaliab, they were filled with the Spirit of God to do it. In other words, the difference to me, at least as I see it, is in the tabernacle, The peop- not only were the blueprints God's design, but the way it was constructed was God's way. And then this was God's design and it was wisdom but in the end of it all, I think he kind of did it with man's wisdom more than his own, with, than with God's in regards to what gets built first. And the reason I say that is in you and in me, the first thing that God does build is the Holy of Holies. That place where it's just you and him. Because that's where it's got to start. That's the core. That's the foundation that can be laid. And then from there, he starts making you mobile. To, and that's the whole idea here. Now, one last thought here. And we'll actually dive into the text, and we'll go fairly quick because I mean, again, I've noticed I've given you a picture in the handout because some of it you're like vestibules and windows and chambers. Well, I wanted to, for you to at least be able to see it, <clears throat> but I'd like you to consider this. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with a holograph. Sort of the, originally, by the way, they actually remember when they were holograms when they are actually they were on a, something that was like a two-dimensional thing, but you can look at them. It was amazing. I mean, now we have them so that they're like, you know, they can perform Japanese music and people like spent unbelievable amounts of money to wave like glowy things in the air. And, you know, you know, yes. And uh, yeah, Sudoku. I'm just kidding. Um, but God bless you. But traditionally when they first started coming out, they came out in sort of a something that looked kind of like a photograph. Remember those things? And you can kind of go like this, and their eyes were following you, and it was creepy and all that. Well, the reason I say that is when it was a true holograph, by the way, if you took this, let's say this thing had the image of a church on it, you could break it into 10 pieces, and a true holograph would be 10 smaller pictures once you broke it, because all of the information was on each of these things. And when you put it together properly, it became the same thing, but much larger and in a much more grandiose sense. Might I suggest that's the idea with us, that we individually become those little pieces for which then God takes his vehicles to touch the world and let him know he wants to be with them. But when he puts us together, people get a clearer and bigger and more majestic picture of what it really looks like with God to be among us. That's the idea. Well, with that in mind, here's the idea here. Solomon now has taken the blueprints and he starts to build in the year 966 BC. Verse 2. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, notice it says house, by the way, because the idea was he didn't just want to build something to kind of tuck God away like a museum. He wanted God to go and make himself at home among these people. The length was 60 cubits, width was 20, and the height was 30. I'm going to make it easy for you, even though I'll probably translate a lot of those. A cubit, by the way, is the distance between the bottom of your elbow and the tip of your finger. We use the example we talk about, the fatal cubit, because if you take that and put it where your head is, by this makes it usually about to the place in your heart. And often you can hear it in your head, but it doesn't make it the fatal cubit to the place where decisions are really made, where lives are really changed. So you can know it in your head, you can counsel someone else, but it seems like that's the case. Now in a reference like this, and again, we're in a technical chapter here. Let me make it easy. Because this is roughly about a foot and a half, it's basically a half a meter. So all you have to do is half the numbers and they're a meter. So in other words, since it was 60 by 20 by 30, that makes it 30 by 10 by 15 meters. Does that make sense? Now, for the rest of us in the world that actually believe that Jesus really wanted us to actually not go with the metric system, because if he really did, he'd only have 10 disciples instead of 12. Well, then there's feet. In that case, it's like a foot and a half. So you have to do a little bit more fancy math than that. So in other words, this is 60, 20, 30. It moves to 90, 30, 45. In other words, we add another half of it. There's kind of the idea. So... First thing is we see the, mat, the sort of outside shape of it. we get again, we see the outside length of it. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house <coughs> excuse me was twenty cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule ended twenty cubits in front of the house, so that's in essence ten by five meters or thirty by fifteen feet. And he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Now, that's really interesting because one of the biggest differences, other than its size, because in essence going to be twice the size. Uh, one of the biggest differences between this building and the tabernacle is that this one has natural light. You have to remember the tabernacle was clothed in essence in skin. And I think that that's a profound thought. The presence of God was supposed to dwell in there between the cherubim, in the ark, uh, you know, among, on top of the mercy seat on the bimah seat, there on the ark, in the Kadesh Kadeshim, the holy of holies. And the whole thing was covered in essence by skin. I think that's cool, of course, because that takes us to John 1, where God himself, the word, manifest and literally tented himself among people. Now, so the only light you had was the one menorah, the one lampstand with the seven branches for which then if that thing didn't stay continually lit and it was, well, then you weren't going to make it anywhere. That thing was going to be pitch black. Here, on the other hand, you've got these windows. So there's a difference for what it's worth. And again, you can keep that kind of mirror, that uh, picture and that might help you a little, even though the writing's like 0.06 font. Uh, the wall, So windows beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around. Now, that's different as well. The tent itself, of course, was its own freestanding thing. Here, he's got things on the side. He's got rooms on the side. More than likely, and again, it's arguable, but basically, it's a priest changing room, and it's for supplies that you're going to need for things. Uh, against the wall of the temple, all around the sanctuary, inner sanctuary, and it was three stories tall. he made the side chambers all around. Lowest chamber was five cubits wide. Here, let me ask you, because this is going to be really fairly simple math. You can give me the meters, okay? So the lowest chamber was five cubits wide. That is how many meters? Two and a half. Come on, come on. Give it to me. Come on, help me here. Lowest chamber was five cubits wide. How much is that in meters? Beautiful, right. So that's seven and a half feet. Middle one was six cubits. That is? Excellent. Or nine feet. The third one was seven cubits. That is? Three and a half, beautiful. Or in our case, it's ten and a half feet. He made the narrow ledges on the outside of the temple. Now, does that sound interesting to you? So, the lowest one is shorter. So now the building starts to look like this, and then it fans out, and it fans out. That's an interesting thought. Uh, and so it says the support beams. It says that he made the narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams could be fastened to the walls of the temple. Now, here's our fundamental key thing in regards to its building like you and me and the temple when it was being built was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built and I want to warn you most of the time we kind of think if I could just get to church God's going to fashion me there no no doubt he does and most of what it is is the in essence, it is the regeneration of our mind. It is that whole idea of being transformed by the renewing of our mind that Romans twelve two speaks of two and three. But most of the chiseling that's going to happen in your life and in mine is going to happen away from where the temple is. So even when you know the bottom line is one of the reasons we wind up at church is because of the chiseling that happens outside in the quarry world. But it's amazing how brilliant this took place. To this day, there are there are stones that are over 110 tons that are actually part of this, for which you could not stick a credit card in between them because of how beautifully they're put together. Now, I don't know who pushes a 110-ton stone. I mean, Samson's been off the picture for quite a while, so I'm not really sure who's doing this. But in the end of it all, even after all the big chiseling happens out there, one of the things that makes us work together is when that stone rubs against another one, we both chisel each other till we actually fit better. And that's what happens in church. But that doesn't happen when you're sitting here listening. That's the, in essence, what God is doing at the moment is providing a proper anesthetic so that when you guys do coalesce and rub against each other, you know, hypothetically, uh, you know, figuratively, in our in our times before and after church so to speak before and after the service we grind each other and we're actually able to go you know what that's actually a good thing sometimes let's face it grinding never feels good it isn't like yay somebody grinded off part of me today but it is a good thing when what happens is God is actually the one behind it to make you more in His image. You may have heard the story about Michelangelo when he was, um, or Da Vinci, no Michelangelo when he was making the uh, angels for the Sistine Chapel, and they were asking him how he did it, and he said, "I just genuinely believe there's an angel in there, and I'm just trying to free it from the remaining rock." That was kind of the idea. And I can see God looking at Deborah or looking at Hugo or looking at Susi, looking at Orion. And as he looks, he's like, there's things that need to be chiseled off. But the problem is that belonged to us until the chisel hit. Let's be honest. Because of that, we're familiar with it. We love it. We embrace it. It's me. Parts of me are coming off. God says, yes, parts of you are coming off. But what I'm making you is necessary for that to come off. And you know what happens then? So much of your lifestyle doesn't fit anymore as God starts to chisel you. It's like being in essence obese and then God actually had you lose half of your body weight and then you tried to grab your old wardrobe. Now that looks a little bit funny at that point. And a lot of our old lifestyle doesn't fit with the new thinner, leaner us. Praise the Lord for that. Just the same, he tells us here that God, in the way that he does things, is he allows a lot of the chiseling to happen, the big chiseling, if you will, to happening, and, and all of that to be happening farther away from the church, if you will. But when you come in, the only thing that happens is you rub against each other. God does the fine tuning. But none of that's going to be heard in here, because here we actually see that it's a good thing. The doorway. For the middle story was on the right side of the temple and went up by stairs to the middle story in the middle of to the third. In other words, you didn't take it from the front or that you had to walk through part of it, in essence. It was in the middle for you to get and work your way up. So we built the temple and finished it, although there's a whole lot more detail. And he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. Now, if he put paneling up, what was there before the paneling? Rocks. That's right. Rocks that had been chiseled. That was us. And then as that happens, then God actually starts to make this thing beautiful by what he places on top of it. And by the way, and again, if you know about cedar, it is amazing how beautiful the smell, how resilient the sap, if you will, and how enduring it is to all kinds of things. So he built the temple and he finished it. In other words, the structure itself was built, but though the structure was itself was built, that could have been enough. And for a lot of places it would be. They're like, okay, it's cool. Buildings there, but not when God's going to live there. We want this thing amazing. So he paneled it with the beams of boards of cedar. And then he built side chambers again against the entire temple, five cubits high that were attached to the temple with cedar beams. And then it says, when the wor- Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, Now, stop. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon. What has been built up to this point? The structure. The outer structure, and even it has a little bit of prettiness to it. Now we've put some wood up. So it looks like a structure. And the outer structure, for the most part, is primarily done. Except for now the ornamental aspect of it. And it's at this point, God says, concerning the temple which you're building... If you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father, David. I will dwell among the children of Israel. Remember, that's the whole point. And I will not forsake my people, Israel. Now, don't miss this, because this is what starts happening in your life and in mine. I gave my life to Jesus. Santi gives his life to Jesus. Daniel gives his life to Jesus. You know, Shamar gives his life to Jesus, and a structure starts to be built. A new life starts to get built. Now I'm not going out clubbing. I'm going churching. You know, now before that I was going to go get wasted. Now I'm going to go worship. I mean, you know, before that point I was going to get blasted, and now I'm in the Bible. You know, it's crazy the differences, right? You know, back then we were going to go scout out girls. Now I'm perusing God's Word. You know, I, I'm not talking. About, I'm talking about everyone else. Not obviously. Where I came from. And you know, and in all of that, it's like and you've got this structure. And the structure is built. And God says, now that the structure is built, now's the time to let's talk about what this is really about. And what this is really about is me being with people. And all I'm asking you to do is obey. That's all I'm asking you to do. What does it mean to walk and execute and keep and to walk? It is just 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 listen to me and do it. Just do what I say. Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen? The same thing that Jesus said when he starts going toe to toe against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 25, where he says, You know, the problem with you guys is you've got the structure down, you clean the outside of the cup. Everything from the outside looks so squeaky clean, but inside on the other side, because you're full of extortion and self-indulgence, it's all about you on the inside. The outside's pretty. Oh, I don't doubt it. The outside's looking good. But inside, and that's the part I look at. Remember, a man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the of the inside, the heart. Because the part I'm looking at is really bad. He goes, you know, it's like a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, people go, look how pretty and shiny and white it is. And God goes, well, you know what? I see what's on the inside, dead men stuff, rotting. Can you see why God hit him up here? And you know what? We call that and where, where we used to, you know, because here it doesn't mean as much, the sophomore stage. It seems like every Christian goes through it. There's a part where you fall in love with the Lord or whatever, and you start doing things, and you realize... You're doing the right things. And then you start looking around for a moment and you're looking at someone else. You start comparing now your structure to someone else's. And you see, well, that guy's not reading like I am. And, you know, that guy's not talking about Jesus the same way that I am. And, and look, I'm not talking about a backslidden individual or a person who's living a life of sin. I'm just talking about you. Because, you know, when you compare at that particular moment in life, you're going to look good and they ain't. That's just the way that works. And in a moment like that you start looking and and and, and you, you get you, you become you know the one thing you lose, if I can just say it as kind as I can, you lose grace. Because you just look and you're like, you're a spiritual idiot. You know? You're like, you know, okay, I'm glad I think you're saved. Glad of that. No, look at in the end of it all, there's a part of us. Now, let me, let me put that with a different heart. Let me rip out that sophomore heart. Sophomore, by the way, was a second year in high school in America. Sophos means wise. Moros, like moron, means fool. A sophomore literally means a wise fool. Because that's what you are. You've got wisdom and you're an idiot at the same time. You know, you can say smart things as an idiot. As a Christian, we might say it this way. When we grow up, we speak the truth in love. But somewhere between we learn how to speak the truth. And then we learn how to speak the truth in love. You know, and where there's like truth, not in love, which basically is like taking something lovely, like a a pillow that should be under your head and filling it with an anvil and smacking someone in the head with it. You win that pillow fight, but it's not intended for that. And in that same way, we get like that. Somewhere in and it. it happens, seems to everyone It happens in ministry too. You get this point, by the way, where you, you know, you're kind of doing it and it's, and it's the structure happens. Now you got it going on and the structure's working. And then you look around and you're like, how come that guy isn't spending as much time doing it as I am? Or how come? And by the way, I've been really blessed here because I guess maybe here, either you haven't said it to me or maybe you just said it to someone else, but, but it's like, you know, I just, you get those places and we've, I've watched it with every person that I've seen launched into ministry. And it's still really sweet, but that season isn't, of course. And it's like the structure's there and God says, let's make sure you know what this is about. This isn't about making a pretty building. It isn't about just having a cool structure. This is about me wanting to dwell, me wanting to make myself at home in you. And for that to happen, I need obedience from you. Please. Before you start decorating this thing and filling the inside, Let's make sure we know what this is about. Because notice in verse 15, the first thing he says, and he built the inside walls. Structures there now. Now he's going to start. And what you do is when you build the inside walls, you are now segregating areas of the inside. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know if anyone's told you this. I guarantee you, I haven't. But there are people who talk about separating the holy from the profane in your life. Or separating the secular from the sacred? What? That would be like, hey, in your refrigerator, make sure you separate the rubbish from the food. My thought is, if it's rubbish and it's in my fridge, it should be, I don't know, binned, thrown away? And Anything that is secular now, now I'm not talking about you can't listen to this song or whatever, and I'm saying anything that isn't handed over to the Lord should be binned sooner or later. That's the way it works. So you know when people go, well, you know, that's not my ministry. I'm just, look it, you are a Christian everywhere you go. You are at the temple of God no matter where you walk now. It isn't like God goes, don't worry, you could just be a normal house in that circumstance or in that context. No matter what the case is, if you call yourself a Christian, people are going to want to know what Jesus is like. And you may be the only Bible they read. And you're like, well, I didn't tell them I'm a Christian. Oh, they'll find out. And God says, before you start segregating areas of your life, separating and putting rooms in. Could you make sure that the whole thing from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, is obedient? Then when you start separating things and this is your Monday day and this is your Tuesday day, it's okay because at least it isn't like obedience didn't make it into that room when you built it. So the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from floor to the temple, the ceiling, he paneled the inside of the wood. He covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. He built the 20-cubit room Okay, 20 cubits is how many meters? Ten. At the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling uh, with cedar boards, and he built it inside as this inner sanctuary, the Kuddish Kaddishim, the holy, most holy place. He's going now, and notice, from the outside to the inside, he's gotten to there. In front of the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. How long is that in meters? Yes. Thank you. Did I wake you? Uh, in the inside of the temple was Cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, all with cedar, no stone seen now. He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple and set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. All the stones are covered, decorated and beautiful. They simply now, hear this, once they're put in their place, you know what your job is at that point? Rest. Let God make it beautiful. Imagine you put the stone in its place and you want to go and put up that paneling and the stone starts moving around and going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? do do? How do I make myself important now? And God goes, sit down, junior, and settle down. Let me make you beautiful. I like that. That's one of the sweet things about what we should do in fellowship is it's like a place we just get to enjoy each other. So Solomon overlaid the outside of the temple with pure gold. The inner sanctuary, 20 by 20, 20 high, so it's a cube, by the way. Um, it, I mean, it's pretty simple here. There's only one kind of structure that is 20 wide, 20 long, and 20 high. and That's a cube, by the way. Interesting, you can compare that by what it's worth to the 100,000-mile cube that is uh, was measured in, in Ezekiel and Revelation. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar with cedar. For what it's worth, I challenge you to take a look at gold and compare it to faith. The whole thing is made beautiful because of faith. So Solomon overlaid the outside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, overlaid that with gold. The whole... Temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple and he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was in the inner sanctuary. That's, by the way, the, the gold, by the way, is reflective, as you can imagine. And, and it's, if it's the gold from Ophir, when it's made thin enough, you can actually see through it. That's a crazy thought. So there's something more pure than just the simple 24-karat gold that we know of. Because uh, we don't normally get to see that. Imagine wearing a gold ring on your hand that is solid and firm and you can see through it and see your own hand underneath it. That's a pretty crazy thought. So then you have to start doing an estimation here. You do the size of the building. And what if you just covered it in, you know, like when things are covered in gold foil, for instance, how that's that really, really thin gold that they gold plate things with. So if they just did that super thin gold plating all over the entire building, how much gold is he going to use? Estimated 35 tons. That's just the overlay. So then we do the average price of gold today, and that puts us at 1.6 billion Great British pounds. It's a lot of gold. But the whole idea of it is, God, I want you to make yourself at home in a place full of light and full of beauty. Imagine that if we say to God, God, I want you to make yourself a home here in a place that's full of light, no darkness in here. And a place that you make beautiful inside the inner sanctuary that 's the holy of holies. He put two cherubim of olive wood each ten cubits high. How tall is that? Five meters? one wing of a cherubim was five cubits. the other wing of the cherubim was five cubits. Simple math, ten cubits from one tip of one wing to the other and the one of the cherub, the one of the cherub was ten cubits. the other cherub was the same. Size and shape. In other words, he was kind of into that whole, you know, why can't I think of the word? You know, when things are, what's that? Symmetrical. Thank you. He's into symmetry. But it's interesting because what you have then, now initially with the Ark, there were two cherubim or two cherub, one on each side. Excuse me, of have the mercy seat and in between was a bloody seat. That was where the blood was splattered on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, <coughs> which one person saw one time a year and that was it. Which is fascinating when you actually get to the uh, book of Revelation when the inner temple is burst open and everyone gets to see it. And, of course, the whole idea of the veil that would have separated was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. Another very profound point of all of this. Uh, Interesting, though, during Jesus' day, there was no Ark of the Covenant in that Holy of Holies. It was gone from the time of the captivity. A lot of information to swallow, forgive me. But I'd like you to consider why two, why there... What does that take me back to? It takes me all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. After man had fallen, and after man had fallen, he was removed from the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Chaden, pleasure, and he posted two cherub. He posted them at the entrance to guard it so that you knew that if you looked at those two cherub, you looked at those two angels, beyond that was where I was intimate with God. That was through there is the only way to be intimate with God, through that. And then the next time I started seeing that are these two cherub, and in between them, two cherubim, and in between it was a bloody seat. Somehow, the only way to be intimate with God, that place of pleasure where it was just you and me, God, and it was sweet, and it was beautiful, and it was intimate, is between these two, and that's a bloody seat. I think that's interesting. Because the next time I'm going to see something like that is in John. When after Jesus had resurrected, Mary peeks into the tomb and what does she see? Just the same illustration. One angel at the foot and one angel at the head. The same thing that it says about the ark. One at the foot and one at the head. And what was in between? A bloody seat. Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. Interesting. Then when Jesus ascends, what do we read then in the book of Acts? In chapter 1? Two of them standing there again going, why are you staring in the sky? You you don't have to keep looking for him because when he comes, you're going to notice it. He says that same Jesus, a lot of other fake Jesuses are going to show up, but the same one, he's going to come the way you saw him go. Literally, physically, obviously, he's going to come back that way. It isn't like he's going to show up, and you are going to miss it. He says, as lightning flashes in the east and is seen in the west, you ain't missing it. Loose paraphrase, but check it on your own. Matthew 24 and 25. And I get the idea through the whole thing. Remember, God's desire is to be with people. But God's desire to be with people, is isn't like he put a whole bunch of cherubim all over the place and said, pick a route, pick a route. Here's a, you know, here's a fat Asian guy on this side. Here's a guy running around with mustard on his head and an orange, you know, suit selling daisies and playing his little drum, you know, down on Oxford Street. And here's another guy who says he's the sinful Messiah. Oh, look at all the choices you get. It's like a smorgasbord. God says there's one way, and it's through these two, and it's a bloody sea. That's your choice. When we get here, what he, what Solomon wanted us to see, and I remind you, this was God's blueprints is that that same thing happening. There is one place, because on that same hill where this is being built, God's own son is going to die a thousand years later. It makes sense to me. So, you know what's interesting is what God said in Exodus 25. Remember that place where he said, make me a sanctuary? As he starts on it, when he goes, now, first of all, make me an ark. And as he does, he says, and when you make me that ark, put a, put a lid on it. And that lid on it, by the way, inside of it would be the broken law, because you need to know. But on top of that was a bloody seat with two angels facing. And he says, and check it on your own, Exodus twenty-five, twenty-two. there I will meet you. And I will speak to you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. And we'll see that same thing in Psalm 99 because it's the same concept. Other references, by the way, John 20 verse 12 is where Mary sees the angels. Acts one ten is where the two are standing at Jesus' ascension. Okay, let's bring this around with our last couple of things and we close this up. Isn't this is just cool how God works the entire scripture into one point like that? And here we are about basically, if you think about a thousand years before Jesus is going to die on the cross and he's already setting all of this up, of course. I mean, David had already written about crucifixion, and it won't be invented for another four to six hundred years. And yet he talks about his bones being out of joint, piercing his hands and his feet, his heart melting like wax, his tongue dried up like a pot shirt. Every bit of that, David says in Psalm 22. Gambling for his clothing. And just from this point, another. 200 years from here, Isaiah is going to just nail the whole thing in chapter 53, where he talks about things, like about what it's really about, that he paid the price for our sin. Upon him, God laid the iniquity of us all. So, verse 29. He carved the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. He carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. The floor of the temple he overlaid with gold. I would imagine that would be slippery, but what do I know? And both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel of the doorpost was one-fifth of the wall. They're going to fold up. The Two doors were of olive wood, and they carved them of, of, of figures of images of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. It seemed to be the decoration choice of this. And overlaid them with gold. He spread gold on the cherubim on the palm trees. So the door of the sanctuary also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. The two doors were cypress wood. Two panels comprised of one folding door. The two panels comprised the other folding door. Symmetry. Thank you. He carved, and then he carved cherubim palm trees and open flowers on them, overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. and He built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. Now it always seems like the three things he seems to be putting in here are these cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Palm trees, by the way, I don't, the classic example is there's a place called Tamar, by the way, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and it was their oasis. They had been thirsting. They were really in a miserable state. And God brings them to a place where they can just rest. And I love that. And anyone who knew Anyone who was familiar with the history of Israel that clearly would know that it's like the picture of an oasis. Now think about how many ads when they talk about a decent holiday or a perfect place always seem to make it tropical. It goes all the way back. But why open flowers? Because it speaks of fruitfulness. It speaks of beauty. And of something only God can do. You know, we yanked all kinds of things. The, the scary part about not being from here, I'm in the midst of a few other things, is when you go into a garden that just basically looks like the Amazon rainforest, you start pulling things up, you don't know whether it's a flower or not. You, and it's like, you know, things are taller than Hugo, and they're actually even tall. And, you know, and you start looking, and it's like, now we're starting to see things blooming, and we're like, wow, that's a really cool flower. Glad we didn't pull all of those out. And imagine what would it be like you saw, and and when you look at the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, and you see all of these, you know, the four living creatures and the elders and this innumerable mass of people saying, holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy. And you get this idea how beautiful this place is. And you walk into the temple as a priest and you walk in and you go, it's resilient, full of light, reflecting off of everything because everything's covered in gold. And your eyes squint and you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And the color that refracts. And now the whole place, is like—it's like it's like you're living in a rainbow. And you're in, a, in, in no, you know, you get it. And, you know, it's like beautiful and it's all of this and it's majestic and strong. And these doors, when they open, how they just ba you know, and how it echoes like thunder, and you get, and, you, and then I look at the book of Revelation, I'm like, oh, this is just like His throne. And then I realize when I get to the end of the book of Revelation, it says God doesn't need a temple, because He's just gonna live with His people forever. There's no place for Him. He doesn't have to find a specific location. We just get to be with Him. There's no light needed anymore, because He's that too. And that's in essence, by the time we finish the book of Revelation, He goes, it's just this is quite simply this. You realize Jesus is everything you ever needed, and he still is for eternity. So, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. That's how when he got started, if you remember. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, month of Bul, by the way, uh, is... excuse me, it means to flow or convey. It's roughly October, November. It is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way. The last great feast, the last great harvest. It started during the first great harvest and then ended at the last great harvest. And interesting, because at the first great harvest, that at Pentecost, the next two, God birthed his church. And you know when that whole thing's going to wrap up? At the last great harvest, for what it's worth. Which is the eighth month. The house was finished. The seventh month is the time of, of the tabernacles. It concludes through that but for them, this house was finished in all its details according to all its plans. So it was seven years in building it. We conclude this chapter with being able to kind of stand back for a second and go, wow, that's a beautiful building. And I want God to build us that way. That they don't just look and go, wow, you're a cool person, or wow, your life's awesome. But to look and see, wow, whatever you have, I want it. And what you have that they could have, is a God who created them to be with them, and that's how this ends. Now let me ask you: Do you know Him? I'm not talking about do you know about Him. Do you know Him? And has He made His home in you, or are you kind of like Airbnb for Him? Jesus, you can come visit. You know, going to church. Would you please come and join me? Because it would look weird if you didn't but the moment you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to Jesus moving in and he took you seriously. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, if you've accepted that gift, <clears throat> then he wants you to know he took you seriously. If you haven't, I'm going to give that choice because I know it's not just us here as well in this room, but it's also being broadcast and I want to make sure that anyone and everyone knows they have this choice. God made you to be with Him. He didn't create you to worship Him. He didn't create you to serve Him. He created you to be with Him. You'll find yourself worshiping and serving Him because you'll know who He is. Because you'll know Him. But He made you to be with Him. And He fills us to overflowing so we can spill Him on others so they realize how beautiful it is to be with Him. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text and all you've spoken to us in it. I want to thank you for the richness of your word. I want to thank you, Lord, for the richness of this chapter, as technical as it has been. I want to thank you, Lord. Because in essence, you're kind of in essence showing us around the prototype of heaven, if you will. But you also show us how you want to make us strong and established, built on the rock. With Jesus, you as our only formidable foundation, built with Gold and silver and precious stones. Burn away the haywood and stubble, even now, and replace them with acts of great faith and a heart for redemption of others, and a life devoted. We just want to tell you we love you. Make us those vehicles as you have appointments to meet others. We openly give you permission. And we tell you, we're available. Use us now to reach those people. We'll be your loudspeakers. It may be comfortable, awkward. I'm sorry, uncomfortable, awkward. But it's right. If there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for your sins, as promised, buried and on the third day rose again, offering new life, Pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I am broken. I'm a sinner. I'm before you guilty. But I believe you love me and died for me so that all my guilt could be punished. All my price could be paid. And now you give me the choice to accept that price. Accept your offer and I say yes. Yes to Jesus being my ransom, my Savior and my Lord. And I give you open permission now to tear me up down to the foundation and lay yourself down as that foundation where you are first in my life, not me first. And then build upon that your dwelling place. That my life, with every choice I make, you lay a stone. And with every choice, may them be ones lived in faith and devotion to you with a heart to see others know you, even as you have that heart. Make it mine now. And I just give myself to you and say, build my life in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh, you've heard our prayers. Take us seriously now, I pray. In Jesus' in your name. Amen.